chapter 12. Luke 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 to 5, two verses today. In fact, this is part 2 of a lesson we did two weeks ago. If you remember last week, we were at the picnic at our house in Clark Summit. And two weeks ago, we spoke on the topic of fear. And today, we're going to sort of do part two of that lesson, but we're going to call this title Practical Fear. If you have your Bibles, join me in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 5. Before we get that, can we bow in prayer? And we'll just give this lesson to the Lord. Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you that we are gathering in your name and your son's sake. And I pray that today you would meet with us. Father, we need you. We need you. We need you to meet with us. We need your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you'd give that to us. As we look into your word today, I pray that you'd open our mind and our ears and our hearts to the truth before us. Help us to see it clearly. Help us to have the right perspective and the right understanding about how important this topic is and what it can actually do for our soul. Father, just bless this time, and we give this all to you for your glory and your honor. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. The title today is Practical Fear. Practical Fear is the lesson today, and we're going to look at two verses from Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 5. But before we get there, we have been talking about fear for a couple weeks, and we're going to continue that. Have you ever been scared by children? It's funny that I would ask that, right? You ever been scared by children? Most of you know that I have seven children. Seven children, or today we're going to look at, before we get to our sermon, the top ten scariest things about having seven kids. Okay? Anyone come from a big family? Five kids at least? Yeah? Okay. Some of you will understand some of these, okay? Even if, even if you were the child. But top ten things about having seven kids, I just want to show this to you. These are the top ten things that I struggle with every single week. Sorry, guys. I don't mean to offend anybody back there, but sometimes you guys terrify us. And I'm sure it goes back, I'm sure it goes the other way as well. Here's top 10 things about having seven kids that are scary. Number 10 is the grocery trips. <laughs> Take a look at that picture. Now, some of these pictures that I'm going to show you are not specifically from our life, but that one is. The other day, I crossed into the two grocery cart territory. I could not fit our groceries into one grocery cart anymore. Now, for a while, I had been. And I had been balancing it precariously on the top of it, and stuff would fall out. The other day, my, my eggs fell out, and that was weird. Um, but grocery trips now are, every time I realize it's going to be grocery day, I get a little bit of a heart flutter because of, because of this kind of thing. Two carts, a lot of time, a lot of different things I have to think about. But uh, thank the Lord for providing groceries. We are glad for that. Here's number nine scary thing about having seven children is... Sometimes we will hear noises in the middle of the night. And it could be typical noises like somebody crying, but sometimes there are also screams, shouts, the sound of vomiting, which is always very, very terrifying. Sometimes we just hear noises we can't explain at all, but typically they're coming from our children, and we have to go down and investigate what is that and where did it come from and who's in trouble. Also, one that is very specific, and I don't know if you guys have faced this if you have children, is sometimes you'll wake up to a child next to your bed staring at you with no context and you wake up and there's a face in your face just staring at you and you know I'm glad I have a strong heart that's all I could say uh, that's number nine number eight thing about having seven kids that is scary is sometimes the noises we hear in the middle of the day which are also very terrifying sometimes something will be a loud crash or the sound of a head hitting something you know how that specific sound has. It's like the head hits something and you know it and you have to go check it out. Uh, so that's number eight. But number seven is scary too. And you guys will understand this. 
Silence. When you have seven kids and there's silence, that's not a good silence typically. That's a calm before the storm silence or something is happening that a naughty and bad and, and I have to check that out because silence is typically a bad thing when there's seven kids. They shouldn't be perfectly silent for too long or you get worried. Number six thing about having seven kids that is scary is when dinner that night is spaghetti or ramen noodles. My kids love spaghetti and ramen noodles. I'm thankful for that. But it also turns into something very, very terrifying for their parents. And uh, we really hate spaghetti and ramen noodles now, even though my kids love them because of that. And uh, we, I wish we should have taken some pictures to see what our table looks like. It's quite interesting. Here's number five scary thing about having seven kids is the looks of judgment that we will get when we go into public. When all nine of us emerge into a restaurant or into a store, we, you, you should see some of the looks we get. And I don't know exactly what we're being judged for, but we get some piercing looks. And I'm not exactly sure what to do with those looks, except to go, yeah, you're right, embrace it, we're here. And then we'll clog one of those lanes at Target and nobody can get through. That's probably why. They know what we're going to do. Or sometimes we'll drive up to the fast food and people know, don't get behind that family. They've been here before. We're gonna, it's going to be a while. Sometimes we get judgmental glances. Here's number four scary thing about having seven kids is stomach flu week. That's actually a picture from our family. And I don't remember how long ago that was. It's one of the twins. See, I can't even tell. Levi, maybe? Uh, one of the twins got the flu. And when you get the flu in the family like ours, it kind of passes to every single person before it finishes. So it kind of turns into flu week or sometimes flu month. Unfortunately, that's very, very scary. Number three thing that I, th I find very terrifying is then when you go into public, you have to count seven kids all the time. The other day, we went out, and we decided to go out and be adventurous, and my head was on a swivel. I'm like, I'm like the count from Sesame Street. I'm always counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And sometimes I'll come to six, and I go, Janine, there's only six. I counted six. We're, we're missing one. We're missing one. Oh, Levi's on Titus's shoulders. Oh, Titus is in the bush. We found him. We're good to go. We're back to seven. But it's terrifying when you don't get to that number seven. Yeah, sometimes they're in the bush. That's another scary thing. Here's number two scary thing about having seven kids is when there's only one sucker left. Terrifying. When they all want a treat and you go, yes, you can have a treat. Everyone can have a treat. And you go to the cupboard or your purse, not my purse, and there's only one sucker left. That's a little terrifying because then you have a, a mutiny on your hands. In fact, number one is, goes along with that. Number one scary thing about having seven kids is when they realize that if they gang up on you, they can kill you. When that day happens, when our kids realize that if they put their muscle together and their forces together, they can take down their parents, that's going to be a scary day. Well, now they know, right? Look, they're planning right now. They're planning. This afternoon, get the rope. <laughs> Top 10 things about having seven children. We're going to talk about fear a little bit today, but we're going to look at it in a different angle today. Last time we spoke on sort of the doctrinal understanding of fear. Today we're going to look at practical fear, what to do with fear. So if you have your Bibles, join me in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 5, and listen to the Word of God once again. Jesus speaking, he said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Today we continue looking at the single greatest deficiency in the modern-day church, the fear of God. 
the fear of God. See, the fear of God used to be a staple of Christianity. It did. You once could not find a denomination that did not heavily stress the fear of God. In fact, so much so that maybe they went a little too far in stressing the fear of God, using nothing but scare tactics to get their people's attention and to get them to commit themselves to the Lord. Maybe they went a little too far. But did you ever hear the phrase, turn or burn? Anyone ever hear that phrase, turn or burn? That's maybe from our generation a little bit. But turn or burn, I kind of grew up hearing this phrase, turn or burn. And it, it used to be pretty popular in Christian circles. In fact, there's a little bit of doctrine in that phrase, turn or burn, that's quite interesting. But turn or burn, at least in the circles that I grew up in, sort of became a punchline. A punchline, and we would use it for those circles of Christianity who were radical and were harsh, who would use scare tactics to get people to turn to Jesus. And it kind of became a punchline in the circles that I grew up in. But do you know where the phrase turn or burn actually started? I decided to do some research, and it kind of interested me to figure out where turn or burn started. And it actually was the sermon title for one of the most famous preachers that ever lived. Charles Spurgeon, in December 7th, 1856, coined the phrase turn or burn for one of his sermon titles. That's the first use that I could find of the phrase turn or burn. In fact, he used it based on a passage from Psalms chapter 7, verse 12. Listen to what it says in Psalms 7, 12. If he, the sinner, does not turn back to God, he, God, will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. Wow. Turn or burn indeed. Only 150 years ago, and much less than that even, the fear of God was a regular diet for Christians and a necessary doctrine for the church. Lest we trifle with the Almighty God and we begin to live a sinful lifestyle that would cause us to flirt with God's wrath. But somewhere in the last 50 to 75 years, the fear of God became too severe sounding for the modern day church. We didn't like hearing it. So many churches removed it from their teaching altogether. Or they began doing this. They began changing the definition of fear, which really needs no definition, and claiming that fear only means reverence and respect to God. But not actually fear. Because nobody wants to fear God. Nobody needs to fear God. And especially Christians never have to fear God, right? Or so was the claim. In fact, I once had a disagreement, a respectful disagreement, with a professor of mine who claimed that we do not need to fear God. And I argued that the fear of God was indeed needed in the Christian life. So my professor challenged me, and I don't know if he was testing me or not, but he challenged me to find passages of Scripture that tell us that we should fear God. And these are the two that I found and quoted back to him. Because the Scriptures speak often about the fear of God. It's all over the place. Listen to what it says in Philippians 2 when it's stated very directly. In Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul speaking, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And when it's not stated in the scriptures, it's often implied. Let me show you one from Luke chapter 13, only a passage later than ours, Jesus speaking, he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I say, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and he began to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. 
And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Don't take my word for it, okay? I want you to open your Bibles and read them very carefully. And don't change the wording of the Bibles. And if you do this, I really believe that you will see the fear of God in every single book of the Bible. It's there. And it's there either stated or, un, or implied because it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable and God made it unavoidable. And we'll look at why that is today. Because why should we fear God? Why should we fear God? I thought God loves us. Doesn't God love us? Why would we ever fear our Heavenly Father who sent His only begotten Son into the world to die for us so we might spend an eternity with Him in heaven? Why would we fear God? I mean, we don't need fear, right? In the Christian life. We don't need more fears in this life that we live in, do we? Everything is fear-based today. We certainly don't need more fear. And I would say absolutely amen to that. What we need, and we talked about this two weeks ago, is the proper fear. And only the proper fear. But the short answer for why we need to fear God are these two things. Number one, he's God. Quite simply, he's God. He's not just our Father. We need to remember this. He is also our God. Yes, he's our Father. Never forget that. He loves you tremendously. But he's also your God. And he is not to be trifled with. He is to be feared. Number two reason which we're going to unpack a little bit more today in greater detail, is this, because we need it. Are there three E's there? Wow, okay. Really stressing that E there. We need it. <laughs> See how I stress that there? We need the fear of God, people. Just realized that there, right there. Why didn't, why didn't Google tell me that, or Microsoft? We need the fear of God, and that's what we're going to unpack a little bit today. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about, is why we need the fear of God. Because I really believe this. The fear of God is one of the best presents God ever gave us. If we see it properly, the fear of the God is one of the best presents he ever gave us. And I know it doesn't seem that way. You ever get one of those gifts that doesn't seem like a present, and then someone has to, like, tell you why it's a present? I used to get those presents growing up. It's like, really? A sweater? Really? A sweater? A sweater? He got me a sweater, and he had to tell me why it was a present. Well, fear of God is a present. I really believe that. If we're going to lay that before you today, why it's a gift, and why it's nothing to shun at, or why it's nothing to turn away from. See, I have seven children. I told you that. And we get told pretty frequently, actually, that our seven children are pretty well-behaved. People tell us that a lot, but I usually tell those people, spend one day in our house, and you might change your tune. (laughs) But I believe to some degree they are right. Our children are generally well-behaved. And the honest reason I believe why our children are well-behaved is because we don't let them act otherwise without consequences. We honor good behavior, and we punish bad behavior. And I want you to muse with me for a moment, okay? Let's take an extreme example of being a parent about how possibly fear could be good for children or for God's children, okay? My family used to live on a very busy road. Now we live on a very secluded road and not a lot of cars go by. But back in our house before this, we lived on a very busy road. Like every 30 to 45 seconds or so, it seemed, a car would pass by. And we had this front yard that our kids loved to play in. It was a decent-sized front yard. Remember that? And our kids liked to play in that front yard. 
But like every good parent, we told our children that they were never to be in the front yard without mom or dad with them because of that road. And if we ever saw them near the road without our supervision, there was going to be big trouble. But on occasion, because our kids are not always well-behaved, one of our kids would forget the rule about not being near the road without supervision or simply neglect to obey us. Janine and I would look outside and see one of our kids near the road without supervision, cars passing right next to them. And even though Janine and I are pretty chill people, I believe we are, pretty level-headed typically, when we saw our children playing by the road, we would storm outside and raise our voice to a level that would make the neighborhood dogs get nervous. <laughs> and then once we brought or dragged our children back inside, the real raising of our voice would begin because now we didn't have the judgmental glances of our neighbors. The real raising of our voices would begin, and typically after an incident like that, we would say something similar to this to our children. Son or daughter, if I ever see you do that again, go near the road, I will spank you. I will spank the flesh off of your rear end. <laughs> Why, Dad? Because that will be nothing compared to being hit by a car. Correct? And just like children need fears sometimes to act properly, so do God's children. See, there exist certain sins in this life, in this world we live in, that are so dangerous, so heinous, and so secretive. There's only one strategy to conquering them, and that is the fear of God. I have worked with young men for the past dozen years. Twelve years I worked with young men and far and away, the number one sin that young men ages 18 to 30 battle with is the sin of lust or viewing pornography. In fact, 99% of the guys that I personally dealt with admitted to me that they view pornography on a weekly basis. It's dangerous, it's heinous, and it's secretive. And most of these young men know that it's evil. And they agree that it's evil, and they even hate the sin, but they can't stop doing it. And so when I would chat with these young men, I would typically ask them, what do you think you should do about this? What do you think you should do about this sin in your life? And typically the answer I would get from these young men is, I should try to do better at not viewing pornography. As if lust was like cheating on a diet. And that's what I would look at them with eyes full of compassion. And I would say to them in the most flowery language that I could find, if you keep up this evil practice and you don't repent, you will go to hell. And the looks I got from these young men were all the same. They were shocked and stunned that a minister of God's gospel who loved them would say such a thing to them. Hell? Really? And then I would have them open up their Bibles and have them read it along with me. Ephesians 5, 3-6, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Hell is reserved for the lustful, amongst other sins. And those are not my words. 
That's right in your Bible as well. They are God's words. And if we hate hearing that, we need to take it up with God. Not me, okay? Don't come and yell at me. It's not my words. And do that carefully, by the way. See, but in our culture, we, we have all but tossed aside the fear of God because it doesn't make us feel comforted. And we don't like anything that doesn't make us feel comforted. The fear of God makes us nervous. And we don't like it, so we remove it. But let's go back and imagine that scenario with my children who are tempted to disobey their parents and play near the road, okay? And perhaps even chase their ball into the road. And because I don't want to scare my children, I don't want to make my children nervous, I open the door and peaceably and gently say to my children, it's okay, kids. No matter what happens, no matter what you choose to do, Daddy still loves you. Do you think my children are going to get the message of how dangerous it is playing near the road in moving vehicles? If that's what I say to them. Do you think my gentleness and my flowery language would encourage them to stay away from the road at all costs? Or is it possible that the lack of fear might actually endanger my children's lives? And if so, then is it possible that the most loving thing I could do as a dad is to scare them away from really dangerous things? Is it also possible that the least loving thing I could do as a dad is do nothing that would make my children ever feel uncomfortable or nervous? Do I sound kind of old school today? Harsh? See, our culture today can't handle this kind of teaching, can't handle this kind of thing, because it's uncomfortable, and we don't like uncomfortable things. We want to be comfortable at all periods of the day. So we've removed a language like this, even though the Word of God has remained constant with it. Is it possible that the fear of God is a true gift of love from our Heavenly Father? Is it possible? It's actually a gift of love. Is it possible that God will do everything He can to keep us away from those sins that would endanger our souls. Doesn't God desire our eternal well-being? Doesn't he? I mean, think about it. Doesn't your God desire your eternal well-being and won't sin harm that well-being? What should God do? What should God do as our loving Father? But before we get too philosophical with this today, we don't want to get philosophical. We want to get practical, and that's the whole point of today. Practical fear. Why do we need to fear God? And how do we use the fear of God properly? Because I do believe there's an improper way to fear God, and I think there's an improper way to use the fear of God. So we want to look at how do we properly, practically use the fear of God. And I'm going to look at four things. The last one we're going to linger on a little bit. Number one is this. Fearing God is foundational to both knowing God and loving God. If you know God, and if you love God, it's because you fear God. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 9, verses 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words, if you want to know God, you begin with fearing God. Fear is step number one. It is foundational to knowing God and fearing God. We cannot know God and love God without fearing God first. In fact, let's prove that. Consider what brings most people to Jesus. Is it not the reality that there are eternal consequences, hellfire, for our sins? Is that not one of the primary, if not the primary reason, people come to Jesus for salvation? Is it not? Making fear of God foundational to the gospel. You don't have the gospel without the fear of God. It doesn't exist. 
It's foundational to loving God and to knowing God. Number two, fearing God is proof of faith and a sign of life. When describing the ungodly in Romans chapter 3, this is the language that the Apostle Paul used. We all typically know this passage from Romans chapter 3. Listen to the language. Paul is describing what we are before Jesus saves us. Okay? These are all worldly people, all sinful people without Jesus Christ. This is what characterizes them. He says in verse 15, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear? Not righteous. Because you would fear God if you knew God. You would fear God if you loved God. But because there is no fear of God before your eyes, you are all kinds of sinful and wicked. And fear makes us aware of good and evil. It makes us aware of good and evil. When we remove the fear of God, we remove those guardrails that God put around our souls to keep us from evil. And when those souls go over those guardrails, they may never return. And if we never turn back to Jesus from our sins, we'll be condemned forever. The fear of God is therefore a sign of life and faith. If you fear God, God is actively loving you today. If you don't fear God, you might be on a very dangerous path. Number three, fearing the Lord is a means to submitting to the Lord. Fearing the Lord is a means to submitting to the Lord. Now, there are two godly men in Scripture, one named the prophet Isaiah and the other one named the apostle John. And both of these men got a vision of the Lord in Scripture. And that vision, that simple vision of God, caused them to fear God in such a sense that they fell on their face before God. Let's read them very quickly. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to show a portion on the screen. In Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he cried to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the, host, the house excuse me, was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's the prophet saying that. The prophet Isaiah. When he sees the Lord, he falls down in fear and humble submission to him. Now let's look at the Apostle John. The Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1 also gets a vision of the Lord. In verse 12 it says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many rushing waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like that of the sun shining in its full strength. 
And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. The fear of God causes us to, sum, to humbly submit to God because there's no other reaction. That is natural. We submit to God because he's God. And we have no option. We submit to God or we die. And submission to God is why we exist. Did you know that? That's why we're here. Not to live good, comfortable, rich, and prosperous American lives. We are here to submit to the will of God. That's why we exist. And we need fear to do that. Fear causes submission to God. And number four, the one we're going to linger on a little bit longer, is that the fear of God keeps us from evil. The fear of God keeps us from evil. When we understand who God is and his stance against sin, we turn away from evil and we strive to follow the Lord in humble obedience to his commandments. We get this also from scripture. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 3. Verses 7 to 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones to turn away from evil. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 26 to 28, it says, When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he has committed. He shall surely live. He will not die. When we fear God, we turn away from what is evil. And when we turn away from what is evil, we turn unto Jesus. And we live forever. The fear of God keeps us from evil. And this is where we want to end today. This is where we're going to linger on just for a moment. The fear of the Lord is our best weapon against Satan and against evil. I'll say it again. The fear of the Lord is our best weapon against Satan and against evil. We need the fear of God in order to fight against evil. If we don't have the fear of God, we will not fight against evil and we will die. See, the fear of God has been neutralized in our culture by Satan on purpose. He knows that the fear of God, if it is removed from our souls, our stance against sin will be greatly reduced. And Satan has lofty goals. He's not in this to make our lives worse or to steal joy from us. That's not his goal. He wants us dead. He wants us destroyed. And the only way that he can destroy us is for us to not turn away from evil, but to turn away from Jesus and towards evil. If we abandon Jesus for sin, we will be destroyed. And that's what he wants. That's his goal. So if the devil can convince us that we have no reason to fear God based on, his, based on our human logic versus what the word of God actually says, then we won't see sin as evil, but only imperfections. And when we see sin as imperfections instead of high treason against a holy God, then we trifle with sin and we trifle with God. And we flirt with God's wrath. And that's exactly what the devil wants. And it's only a matter of time until we give ourselves to sin and we walk away from the Lord indefinitely. But what if we did fear God? Truly fear God. Like the scriptures speak about. Consider what kind of war we would make against sin and against the devil. 
if we truly, truly feared God. I want you to imagine for a moment, don't shout this out loud, of course, but imagine for a moment a secret sin that you have or have had in the past. Consider that sin, that sin that you did regularly and habitually. Hardly anybody knew about it. It was just something you sampled from time to time. Or maybe you were addicted to it and still are. And you just hope that the Lord looks past it on Judgment Day. But either way, you're not turning away from your sin because you enjoy the sin and because you don't fear God, hypothetically speaking. And therefore, this sin has a vice grip on your soul. It won't let you go, and you don't see yourself ever letting it go. It's always going to be a part of you. I remember saying that exact thing to myself in my mid-20s. I will always do this. But after the study, hypothetically speaking, you begin to fear the Lord in the proper way. And we're not talking about walking on eggshells with the Lord. That's not the point. We're not talking about being paralyzed in fear and not able to move. That's not the point. We're not talking about questioning whether God loves us or not. That is not the point. No, that's not what we're talking about. We should spend more time on this and combat those wrong types of fear because there are wrong types of fear out there. And the devil wants us to have those as well. Because we can't fear improperly. And someday we'll investigate that a little further. But for the sake of our message today, let's say that you begin to fear God in the proper sense. You begin to see sin as utterly sinful and utterly evil. And that secret sin that you have now has a bullseye on it. The sin must die before it kills you. What do you think would happen in our battle against sin? If we feared God, won't we go to war against sin? And therefore, don't you see how the fear of God will actually cause us to be vicious and relentless against fighting sin? Lest we're found to be fighting God instead. The fear of God actually makes us courageous against evil. Courageous. In fact, we all wonder... I had TG to read this from 1 Samuel 17 this morning. What made David, soon to be King David, run into battle with a giant Goliath? What made him do that when everyone else bigger than him and stronger than him and more armored than him were all cowering in fear? What made David run into the battle with Goliath? Yes, he trusted the Lord. Of course he did. Yes, he loved the Lord. Of course he did. But isn't it safe to assume that David also feared the Lord? He heard that day the Lord's name being defamed and blasphemed from the enemy army. And David could not stand it anymore and let it happen. David knew that he would be an accessory to the crime of blasphemy against God if he stood idly by and did nothing. Because standing idly by while your Lord is blasphemed is also evil. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12. Whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So David feared God, and it caused him to run into battle against the giant because the only other option was to stay quiet and to side with evil. And David feared God too much to stand idly by while God's name was being dragged through the mud. Listen to our passage again. Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not 
fear those who can kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. David knew the Lord, and David loved the Lord, and David also feared the Lord. And that gave David an incredible amount of confidence and courage in the battle against an enemy twice his size. See, Goliath was, was nothing compared to God, right? Goliath was huge in his own context. But compared to God, which would you rather fight? Goliath, the giant on earth, or the almighty God? David calculated that he would much rather fight Goliath, even if it killed him, because he does not want to be found fighting God on the last day. I can lose to Goliath, but I cannot offend my God. Going back to that secret sin of ours, hypothetically speaking, there are only, there's only one strategy to defeating those certain sins, and it is the fear of God. Even though we love the Lord, when that secret sin, that giant, takes hold of us, at least in the moment, we love the sin more than we love the Lord. Isn't that true? At least in the moment, we love the sin more than we love the Lord. Therefore, we sample the sin because we believe it will give us more joy and more fulfillment than the Lord can, at least in that moment. That's exactly the rationale Satan used with Adam and Eve. Of course, you have thousands of trees to eat from, but what about the one God is holding you back from? Perhaps it has more joy and more fulfillment in that fruit than all the other fruit you have tasted. Maybe God is holding back from you. And that's honest, but it's sad to admit that, isn't it? That we find more joy in sin than we do in the Lord at some moments in our lives. So we choose sin over staying faithful to Jesus because of the fleeting momentary pleasure that sin can give us. And then in the morning we regret it and we feel bad, and we feel guilty, and we confess it, and often that cycle happens over and over and over. We sin, we feel bad, we confess it. We sin, we feel bad, we confess it. We sin, we feel bad, we confess it. Until one day we stop feeling bad about it, and our conscience becomes seared, and we no longer feel guilty about sin. And that is the day we die in our sin when we don't feel bad about sin any longer. Sin gets a vice grip on our souls, and we let the devil have his way with us, and if we continue in that sin, we will be lumped together with the unbelievers on Judgment Day. And I don't want you to take my word for it. Read 1 John chapter 3. We cannot afford to keep sinning. We can't. We can't afford it. But what if we, like David, truly feared the Lord what if the choice in the moment was to fight sin, the giant, or fight the Lord? To sample sin, or to sample God's wrath against sin? To stand up to sin, or to stand up to God? To say no to sin, or to say no to God? To acknowledge God in our actions or to act like a practical atheist. If we feared God, what do you think our choice might be? See, the fear of the Lord is indeed a powerful weapon against the devil, and we must never, ever lose that weapon. We need it. 
And we should be careful to always balance the fear of God with the love of God, okay? Let's not go too far. I believe the love of God and the fear of God are kind of like a spiritual teeter-totter, okay? We need to keep that bar level. If we let one go lower than the other, it might vault the other one off entirely, and that's not good. We need the fear of God. We need the love of God. We need to balance those two. But in our culture, most of us have been unbalanced the other way. The love of God is all we care about today, and the fear of God has been launched off the teeter-totter into space. We no longer want it. We no longer need it. And it's because we only desire to have the love of the Lord in our lives and not the fear of the Lord. Because God's love makes us feel comforted. We want to sing about it. We want to think about it. And the fear of the Lord makes us nervous. But we need the fear of God to stand up to evil. We need it. We need it to obey Jesus. We need it. The fear of God was given to us as a gift, a weapon of warfare against evil that Satan can't defeat. He cannot defeat us with the fear of God. And when the devil sees that we have the fear of God, the true fear of God, and our resolve to not sin is high. And our resolve to honor and glorify the Lord is high. And we know and we believe that giving into sin is flirting with God's wrath. Then the devil watches as we transform into a soldier for Jesus. And when we become soldiers for Jesus, the devil and his kingdom are in trouble. And he knows it. Guys, we need more soldiers for Jesus today. More soldiers. And the reason we don't have more soldiers today is because the fear of God has been neutralized and almost entirely taken away from modern-day Christianity. But no fear of God, no fight against evil. But if we get back to fearing God and we see it properly and we balance it with God's love for us, then soldiers for Jesus will arise once again and the devil will begin to backpedal and he will begin to lose ground upon this world. This is a crucial, tr crucial truth today. The fear of God can literally change our lives and it can literally change the world. It did for David. It did for the Israelites. They finally got a good king because David feared the Lord. And as a testimony, I want you to know today, as a testimony, I stand here as your pastor today for one reason. Do you know why I stand here today as your pastor? Because at age 25, I had almost no fear of God in my life. And at age 26, the Lord took the scales off my eyes and let me see him clearly for the first time. And that is the day I gained the fear of God. And that is the day that I became a soldier for Jesus. That is the day I stepped onto the battlefield for Jesus because I was more nervous to resist God than to resist the devil. My testimony is not for self-glory. It is to say that God alone is the only one we should fear. The only one we should fear. And we should fear God so we turn away from evil. Take those long-term, secret, lifestyle sins and put a bullseye on them today. And resolve in your mind, maybe for the first time ever, that you're now a soldier for Jesus. And then declare war on Satan and on sin. And then step on the battlefield and run at the giant with the power and the strength of the Almighty God. Now, the giant might kill your body. People might kill your body.
But God can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God and run into the battle against evil. Don't fear God and run into the battle against God himself. Our application today is very simple. Five things. Five things we need to do. Number one is fear God. Fear God and nothing else. Fear God and nothing else. If you need to, go back two weeks ago and listen to the doctrine of that lesson. Fear God and nothing else. Only God should have your fear. Only God. Everything else God is taking care of. Everything else. He has left that one job for us, to fear God. Number two is to see sin as exceedingly sinful. Not as imperfections. See sin as exceedingly sinful. Say this in your own mind for the first time. Sin has to die. I remember saying that when I was 26. I can no longer let sin reign in my life. Sin, you must die because I'm not going to die. See sin as exceedingly sinful. Number three, see the devil as our enemy and that we must fight him to the death. Satan must be conquered and resisted. He must be defeated just like Goliath was on the battlefield. Number four, commit to yourself that you would rather die in this life than offend God. If it comes to that, and it might someday, offend God or die. Commit to yourself, I'd rather die. I'd rather die in this life than face God having not acknowledged him and standing before him in my sins. We cannot afford to offend a holy God. We can't. None of us. Number five is believe that God fights for those who fear his name and turn away from evil. How was David able to defeat Goliath, even if he was courageous, even if he was confident? How did he take down a seasoned warrior named Goliath? Guess what? He didn't. God did through David because he went into that battle with the strength of God. When you fear God, God steps on the battlefield with you and you both defeat Satan and evil. We will be on God's team when we fear him. Isn't that interesting? When we fear God, we draw close to God. Not away. Those bad fears of those people that maybe have been abusive in your, in your time, in your relationship, you want it to be away from them, right? God, our God is not abusive at all. Our God says, fear me so that I can be near you. Fear God so that I can fight for you. Fear God so that I can love you. Fear God so that I can protect you. Come near me. The worst thing you can do is distance yourself from God. When we fear God, we draw close to God. And when we draw close to God, he fights for us. See, practical fear has been lost for generations in the church, and it's time we get it back. It's time we get it back. This world needs the fear of God. This world needs to see Christians with the fear of God, and only the fear of God. Not the fear of what's happening in our world in 2021. Don't fear any of that nonsense. Any of it. Fear only God. Will you see the Lord and his love for you today in a better light? And will you fear God and turn away from evil in all areas of your life? Because the only other option is to fight God himself. Miami Valley Church, become a soldier for Jesus today. If you're not already, we need more soldiers for Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this gift. And it is a gift. And I pray and hope that we can all see that today. I'm sure at the beginning part, Father, we, we, we want to shun this and feel nervous about the fear of God. But once we understand it, it is a fear and a gift of love from our God to his people so that we can do what you've called us to do. 
and we can dominate evil in this life. Father, we can dominate evil in this life if we will do it the way you've taught us. Help us to fear you. Help us to fear nothing else. Help us to see clearly what you've called us to do and to step onto the battlefield in the name and the glory of the Lord against evil, against Satan, and let us conquer this world for Jesus' sake. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.